Good morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Dan. I'm the pastor here at Coast Bible Church. And uh, good morning, kids in particular. Um, I actually have a question for the kids. Uh, so I've got here on the screen two pictures, and I want you to tell me which one your bedroom looks more like, okay? So bedroom on the left or bedroom on the right? <laughs> what, do you, what do you reckon, Ewan? On the right. I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> what if we asked mum or dad? <laughs> hopefully, yeah, hopefully we're moving more towards the left, right? But uh, growing up, I wonder, Ewan and, and Daisy as well, um, which uh, one do you think my bedroom looked more like when I was a kid? <laughs> well, you don't have to say it too loud. <laughs> yeah, the one on the right. Uh, in fact, I, I don't have a photo of what my bedroom looked like as a kid. I've got an artist's rendition. It looked kind of like this. <laughs> my room was just a bit of a, a bomb site. And, and, you know, if I was my mum, <laughs> I would have just been tremendously upset by that. In fact, it did send around the bend sometimes, both me and my brother. Because how could this happen in my own house, right, under my own roof that, that you know, mum and dad have worked for and provided for us and this is what we do with her space, uh, think about how a parent views their child's messy room. Think about the upsetting nature of that, even as you're patient with your kids. I think that's probably a bit like what Jesus discovers as he enters Jerusalem, right? If you were with us last week, here's the coming of the king. Here's the prophesied king arriving on a donkey. This is the, the son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the true king. That's what we saw last week. Here he comes, and what does he find? He rocks up to the temple, the house of God, this place that represents God to the world, this place in which God's people should be gathering to worship him. And what does he find? A giant mess, a bombsite, something that really needs fixing. And however much a messy room might upset mum or dad, yeah, this is truly offensive to God what he finds here. It's not just upsetting, it's offensive. That's why we see Jesus respond in such a strong way, right? He storms the place. He upends tables. He chases people out, which raises a problem for us, doesn't it? If you remember last week, I was making the point that here comes the king and he doesn't come to make war. He comes to bring peace. So what happened to the humble king riding on a donkey? Well, the thing to realize here is that uh, the temple is the place where people are supposed to be able to come and find God, right? How are they going to find God when the situation is as Jesus finds it? How are they going to find peace if they can't find God? And so judgment begins here with the people of God. Jesus cleans house so that he can make space for true worship. Or if you want to put it another way, he comes to confront and reform dead religion. He finds dead religion in the temple, and so he comes to confront it and to reform it. And this isn't just a suggestion, right? This isn't Jesus just coming saying, I wish things were different. Maybe you should think about. Could you reflect on? No, he comes, he confronts as the Son of God. And he does the same thing today still. 
whenever he finds dead religion, whether it's in our churches, our gatherings, or even our own lives, he still confronts and seeks to reform dead religion. So friends, it's, it's vital that we understand what's happening here in Matthew chapter 21. Some of us may be at risk. Some of us may be in need of reform. In fact, from time to time, I think all of us are. And so, this is a hard thing uh, we're going to hear from the Lord this morning, but a necessary thing, a vital thing, wherever you may be in terms of your thinking about Christianity. And so, let's pray to Him for help, and then let's see what dead religion looks like and how Jesus seeks to reform it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we we ask simply that um, what we are not, You would make us. What we need to learn, we pray, please teach us. What we need to see, Lord, please show us. We ask it as those who are dependent on you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this season's, uh, season, this, uh, this, seer, this see, scene, there we go, we got it. This scene starts with an absolute bang. Turn to page 826 in your church Bibles if you could. Or uh, Matthew 21, if you're using your own. Uh, Matthew doesn't mince words here. That's what sticks out to me initially. He's not trying to spin this for good PR, right? Like he's not trying to set Jesus up as, as someone who is appealing to any particular culture. He just gets right into it. Here's Jesus walking into the temple and driving people out. And just imagine if you're there at the time. Take a look there at, at verse 12 as Jesus enters the temple, he drives out those who sold and bought in the temple, he overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. Just get a picture of that. He's knocking over crates, <laughs> pigeons are flying everywhere, people are running around, uh, tables are getting flipped, coins are scattering to the ground as kids go to try and pick them up. It's absolute chaos. <laughs> so, so why is Jesus responding so strongly in this way? Well, before we answer that question, it is worth noting that Mark's gospel does fill things out just a little bit for us. In case you're not aware, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke, the first three gospels, all sort of follow some common threads in the life of Jesus. And so sometimes you'll see Matthew bringing out one angle and then you'll see Mark or Luke bringing out another angle and you go to all three to kind of get the full picture, right? And so in Mark chapter 11, here's what we read. I'll put it on the screen for you. Mark chapter 11, he entered... The temple in Jerusalem. So, right, he, he came to Jerusalem on the donkey, he got off, he came into the town, he entered the temple, and then when he'd looked around at everything, it was already late, he left and he went back to Bethany with his 12 disciples. So, what was this saying? It's saying that there's actually two visits to the temple that Jesus does. It sounds when you read Matthew like he just has one, he gets off the donkey and then goes and drives people out, but that's not the case. He actually gets off the donkey, takes a look at the temple, takes stock of what's happening, and then retreats to Bethany outside the city of Jerusalem. Why is that important to note? Because this is not a reaction from Jesus. It's not him just sort of walking in and then flying off the handle in a rage. He looks at what's happening, he withdraws, he reflects, he considers. Then he goes back the next morning and the scene plays out. Really important to note that. Jesus is not sinning here. He is not reacting in anger. He is responding to the offence. 
But what makes him respond so strongly? Well, verse 12, here in God's house, there are people buying and selling animals. Here in God's house, there is a currency exchange. God's temple, God's house has become a marketplace. And we might assume that that's the problem. You can't do economics, you can't do trade in God's place. Maybe we should get rid of the little offering box up the back. Maybe we shouldn't be counting money in the office when people have given their offering. Nigel shakes his head, he's like, oh, it'd be bad for the budget, right? That, that's actually not the problem here, though. Uh, I just want you to understand something of the context here in the first century. People are coming from hundreds of kilometres away to come and worship at the temple, particularly at this time of year. It's the Passover, right? This is like the highlight in the Jewish calendar. And so you've got people, Israelites, from all over the countryside. They're coming from hundreds of kilometres, right? Hours and hours, maybe even days of walking. Uh, if you're going to take an unblemished lamb from your flock to come and bring it to, to make a sacrifice, it is not going to stay unblemished <laughs> over those hundreds of kilometres in the dusty wilderness, so what people would do is they'd bring money instead and they'd purchase an unblemished lamb while they were there in Jerusalem. That just makes pragmatic sense, doesn't it? That's okay. There's no prohibition to that. And then also when you come to the temple, uh, there was a particular coinage that was used. It was Tyrian currency. That's because the people of Tyre apparently had just like the, the most um, attention paid to the, the metal constitution of their currency. So it was the most reliable currency. You know how we kind of benchmark against the US dollar? It was kind of like that back then. Uh, and so again, being able to change a currency into this Tyrian temple currency, that's all okay. So it's okay to come and buy and sell, but it's okay to change currency. That's not really the problem. But this buying and selling and this currency exchange is sort of... The problem is it's replacing something else. It's replacing true worship. Really, this is a worship problem. It's a worship problem that has to do with the who of worship, who is allowed to come and worship, and it's to do with the how of worship. How do the worshippers actually live? And we get a sense of that when Jesus explains his actions in verse 13. Take a look there. So he's there, he's knocking over the crates, the birds are flying everywhere. And then verse 13, he says to the people, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now Jesus is quoting here from two Old Testament passages. And that's why he says there, it is written at the start. And across those two passages, we actually see these two problems. The who problem and the how problem. Who is allowed to come and worship and how do the so-called worshippers actually live? It's not just that people are running a market. It's that these are things that are happening in place of true worship. It's getting in the way of the who and the how people should be worshipping. So I want us to, to spend the rest of our time today really looking at those two things, looking at what dead religion looks like and then how Jesus seeks to reform it, okay? So the first part, the who, we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6 to 7. And if you've got a, one of the black church Bibles, um, that's on page 616. I want you to see this with your own eyes. It's important that you don't just take my word for it, okay? Page 616, Isaiah 56. And I want you to hear, uh, what's, the, what's the theme, what's the thread that's running through 
this couple of verses we're going to read. We're going to look at verse 6 and verse 7. Listen to this passage that Jesus quotes. See if you can hear the thread. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my comfort, uh, my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. What's the thread running through that? Can, can you hear what it is? Give me some feedback. What's the thread? Worship? Absolutely. Loving and serving the Lord? God's house? Yep. Any other thread you can pick up? Yeah, the, the foreigners, the outsider... They're the ones that come to God's house, as he said, Judy, and who come to worship and to serve the Lord. It's that the foreigner should be welcome. This is a, a question of who can come to worship, right? Who can come to serve the Lord? Who can come and keep his covenant? Who can come and make this sacrifice? Who will be accepted before the Lord? And the answer, verse 6, the foreigners, right? Not just the Jews, not just the Israelites, not just God's people from the Old Testament era, but anyone from across the whole world. It's for the Gentiles, for anyone who comes and submits themselves to God as their king. In that sense, as the last line of verse 7 puts it, this will be a house of prayer, a temple of worship for all peoples, a place where all nations can come and worship the one true God. Now, unfortunately... Something in that message has gotten lost in translation when you look at the temple in Jesus' time. And I want to show you here just a little bit of, of the layout. Uh, the, the temple, by the way, was destroyed and then rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt again. And, and at one point, King Herod rebuilt the temple. This is a bit what it looked like. So right in the middle there, uh, you can see... I think this has a little thingy on it, doesn't it? Maybe not. Uh, you can see there on the, the right-hand side, I think it says nave and holy of holies and the curtain. Uh, that was a place called the holy of holies. You know this stuff? Yeah? Uh, the holy of holies where um, God sort of revealed his presence most intimately among his people. And who could enter the holy of holies? Only the high priest and only once a year, right? So it's just saying this is, this is the most exclusive part of the temple if you want. This is where God makes himself most known. Outside of that, you've got the court of the priests. So this is where the Levitical priests, one particular family of the people of Israel, would come to serve in the temple. Then you've got the court of the men of Israel. And then outside of that, it says there the court of Israel, which is a bit more PC. Really, it's the court of the women of Israel. They separated the men and women in this version of the temple. And then outside of that, you've got the court of the Gentiles, right? Now, on the plus side, at least in this temple construction, this layout, the Gentiles have a space to come and worship, right? That's on the plus side. On the minus side, look how distant they are, really, <laughs> from the presence of God. And, and just so you know, this was never an Old Testament, Testament mandate. 
This was never how the temple was meant to be designed in terms of the Gentiles being out separated. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says that's how it was meant to be. Uh, King Herod built it that way. He was a, a Jewish king. Um, and he actually set up on the border between the court of the Gentiles and the court of Israel these like warning signs, you know, like danger, electricity. Uh, don't come close, don't cross this line or we'll kill you. Right? So he, on the minus side... Uh, the Gentiles were very much relegated to a place that God never demanded. But on the plus side, at least they had a space, right? Yeah, a space among the pigeons and the goats and the cows wedged between the tables of the money changers because where did those guys set up? Take a guess. The court of the Gentiles. That's right, which you can kind of see there in, um, uh, where is it, uh, verse... 12, right? He, he finds this as soon as he enters the temple. So as soon as he enters through into that outer court, this is what he finds, right? They set up all in the court of the Gentiles. And isn't that just sending a message? What's the message it's sending? They're not important. That's right, Christina. Uh, the Gentiles don't matter. They don't matter to us. And I mean, think pragmatically. Are the Romans going to come and worship the God of Israel? <laughs> like, no way. So, so, let's just think strategically, why don't we just use that space for something more effective then, right? Well, people have got to come and they've got to buy their sheep, so why don't we do that there? And people have got to come and change their currency into Tyrian currency, so why don't we just set them up there, right? I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? They're coming to the temple anyway, so let's, let's get them while they're coming in. And, you know, if that helps the temple's coffers, even better. You see how this all makes sense, don't you? And I think it's not just the, the Gentiles, by the way, that are being excluded here. I think Matthew actually has a view for anyone that doesn't fit the mould of Israelite religion at the time. And the reason I think that's for two reasons. Uh, one, if you're someone who's exegetically minded and you want to like dig into why this is, uh, I think it's interesting that Matthew uh, doesn't say a house of prayer for all nations. Um, I think it's Luke who does say that. He does the full quote from Isaiah. He just says a house of prayer. And so I think he's, he's widening things. It's definitely all nations, but it's, it's also all kinds of people that he might have in view. And, and the other part of that, I think, that signals it is in verse 14. So this is back in Matthew 21. In verse 14, as soon as Jesus clears the temple, who floods in? Have a look. Verse 14, who floods in? Yeah, yeah. The blind, the lame, the sick, the children, the people who are unclean or unsuitable for temple worship. Uh, and so Jesus is saying, hey, here's the all kinds of people that are meant to be here to worship. It's the Gentiles, it's the unclean, it's the unsuitable, it's the outsider. I think that's who he has in view. And yet the religious leaders don't care for these outsiders. They just don't care. Uh, Ray, that's uh, not clicking for me. I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, now, it'd be like if we had a, a culture as a church where, um, and you know, we, we keep kids in with us, Right? Uh, that's part of our culture. We want whole families to worship together. And one of the things just that happens practically is families tend to sit somewhere. If you take a look <laughs> up the back there, there's my wife, and there's Emma, and there's Jazz, and there's Bella. Uh, Bella, there's Lauren. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the families are all up the back. And there's some sense to that, right? If there's a poo explosion or there's a scream or whatever, you need to make a quick dash, then yeah, okay, fair enough. So imagine, parents, if you came in one morning to church and up the back... All those seats are gone, and we've replaced them with tables. 
and on the tables is like the latest Coast Bible Church merchandise, right? We've got some hoodies, we've got some hoodies as well, if you want your Coast Bible hoodie. Uh, we've got some little coffee mugs. I think Nicole is working on the design for all this. Yep, that's right. $39.95 for a hoodie if you want one. Uh, so, so imagine, parents, you come up the back and that's what you find. Now, now that's sending a message, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with having a hoodie. I think it's a bit weird. But um, the, the real problem, of course, is that the space for the parents has all just been totally taken up by something else. It says that we value parents and kids knowing Jesus so little that we're willing to replace them with a jumper and a coffee mug. That's what's happening here. And I mean, maybe it made pragmatic sense to them at the time, let's make better use of the space. But here's the thing to really grab, friends. Pragmatics never trumps theology. Pragmatics never trumps theology. If you want to put it another way, what we do should never trump what's true. What works should never trump what God says. And in this case, the truth of the scripture is that God invited both Jew and Gentile, both supposed insider and supposed outsider, to come and worship him. And the fact that the outsider can't come and worship in the temple because the space has been taken up is offensive to God. It is dead religion. This is what dead religion looks like. When pragmatics are more important than theology, when what we do is more important than what God has said, because where that can lead is losing God's heart for the other, for the world, for the outsider, for people who don't look or sound like us, that God longs to draw into our midst, right? Now, the implications of this are pretty straightforward. We need to stay open to people who look and sound different to us, right? We need to stay open here in this church. But I also want to just unpack another implication of this for you. And I'm mindful that I am really just talking to our church this morning. Uh, I know that there are a couple of people on YouTube, and hello if you are. Uh, but generally, it's just a couple of people from just tuning in from a couple of places. But I'm talking to you guys, even as I'm going to help you now interpret something that relates to other churches. Okay? So this is something that relates actually to many churches. There is a danger for churches, which is to chase a target market. You know what I mean by that, target market? That's where you say, we are going to aim for a certain kind of person as a church. All right? And we're going to engineer the way that we do church to try and reach that certain kind of person. And this became uh, common in a time during the 1980s, a time called the Church Growth Movement. If you want to Wikipedia that and have a look at it, if you want, a little interesting era of church history. Uh, but during this time, it became very popular to organise churches around target markets. And the idea is that, uh, you know, we want to grow the church, we want to see many non-Christians come, and churches grow faster, in fact, any group goes faster, when you see people that are like you. It just eases the entry point. So what cropped up was churches for 20-somethings, professionals, uh, churches for young families, churches for older folk who love singing hymns, uh, churches for surfers, the Anglo-Aussie church here, and then the Korean-speaking church here, right? They're all sort of siloed off as separate churches. 
And uh, this is still a popular thing today. It wasn't just 1980s. It's very popular for churches and even congregations of churches to form around this kind of idea. So you've got the classic is the 8.30 church for the old folk who love the hymns and then the 10.30 church for who? For families, yeah. And then the 6.30 church for who? Yeah, the young guys. Yeah, that's right. And you can sing the faster songs and all of that, but don't come to 8.30 if you want the faster songs. That's, that's the idea. And I'm not saying, just I want you to hear me really clearly on this, I'm not saying churches that do that are dead religion churches, right? As if Jesus is going to come in and like upend the welcoming table because they dare to have a family service or a young people service. That's not what I'm saying. But there is something that these churches miss about the breadth of the unity that God intends for his church. Because uh, here's the thing, uh, siloing off into different ages or interests or preferences or cultures, it makes a lot of pragmatic sense, doesn't it? It makes pragmatic sense to gather people who are like-minded. You'll grow faster, probably. Less complexity, easier, easier relationships, faster growth. But here's the thing, when did God reveal that his plan for the church was less complexity easier relationships and faster growth. A house of prayer for all Aussies. A house of prayer for all 20-somethings who wear suits and go to Sydney during the week. Right? That's never been God's revealed plan for the church. God's plan is not siloed off churches or congregations that just do what works. It's for churches that aren't narrow but are broad. Churches that are compelling communities because they're full of different people who have unity in Christ. Yes? That is the thing that unites us, not our preferences or our culture or our background or our age. And like I said, churches that silo off and do the other thing are just at risk of of missing that breadth. And I want to help you interpret that because that's not what we do here. We are a church that really takes seriously what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 14, that Christ has come to destroy the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between all kinds of people, between insider and outsider. Literally, if you want to think about it, in the temple, destroying that wall between the court of the the Israelites and the court of the Gentiles. He has destroyed that wall through his work at the cross, bringing peace where there once was no peace. And we want to put that on display, don't we? That's why we're all in. That's why we're not going to be the church ever that does the 8.30 old people service, the 6.30 young people service. We're going to be all in together developing thick relationships that are hard. But we're going to pay the cost. We're not going to just do what works. We're going to do what God says and we'll make it work. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. The implication though, of course, is that we need to stay open, each of us. And I want you to think, is there a a kind of person that you just find it really hard to get along with? I actually passed someone on the way here, like I was praying for this sermon, and just as I was coming out of a a Voca Drive, I saw a dude walking across the street, barefoot, dreads, um, who spat his chewing gum onto the street. (laughs) And it reminded me of a dodgy neighbour I used to have, and I just went, my initial response was just like, ugh, Right? Sorry if that's you, by the way, if you think you're getting dreads and spinning you. I don't know, whatever. But, but like, you know that response you have sometimes to a certain kind of person? I want you to clock that for a moment and think, wow, yeah, I do have that response, but what if God wanted to save that kind of person and bring them here? What if he wanted that kind of person in my growth group? 
What if you wanted that person in my house? Welcoming them, loving them, bringing the truth to bear on them. We need to each stay open to this, friends. We need to be the ones that don't just tolerate the outsider, but seek them, love them, welcome them. Because anyone who starts thinking Christianity is just for people like me is on the way to dead religion. Anyone who thinks that this church is just for people like me is at risk of heading for dead religion. It's what Jesus came to confront. So there's the first problem, a who problem, who can come to worship. Then there's a second problem we see here. It has to do with another passage that Jesus quotes from. And this is to do with how the occupiers of the temple are living. And I do call them here occupiers of the temple. I don't know whether they're really worshippers. Because Jesus calls them in Matthew 21, a den of robbers. Which is literally true, by the way. Uh, If you read some commentaries on Matthew 21, you'll find that um, uh, when they come, the the people come to, um, maybe they have brought their, their lamb, for example, a couple of hundred k's across the wilderness because they thought, well, you know, I can't afford to buy one there, so I'll bring one for my flock. And then they come and the, the chief priest will take a look at the lamb and you know what they'll do? They'll go, not good enough. Actually, we've got one that you can buy. It's just over here at this table. Why don't you go and get that one instead? Oh, and by the way, you'll need to pay for it with our temple currency There is a small 25% surcharge, but at least it goes towards the temple, right? That's what the commentators say is going on here. It's a bit like at Hoyt's, where you you come along, and I know no one actually obeys this rule, but the rule is no outside food and drink, okay? And the idea is don't bring your outside food and drink, not because we're worried about messing up the cinema, but because we want you to go to the the kiosk at the front where everything is double the price. That's the sort of thing that's happening here. So literally, they are a a den of robbers. Um, But there's something deeper also going on here as well. Um, That is, uh, as this line, den of robbers, it comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. So flip back there with me if you could. Jeremiah 7, it's just to the right of Isaiah. If you're using the Church Bibles, page 634. Again, if you've got your Bible with you, and please do bring your Bible with you to church, I want you to flick to it. I want you to see this. There's a reason I'm not putting it on the screen. I want you to see these words for yourself. Context is, it's about 500 years before Jesus is around. God's people are in exile. They've been kicked out of the promised land. Why have they been kicked out of the promised land? Because of their sin. God has seen their rebellion against him, their false worship. He's warned them time and time and time again. And now he's sent them into captivity under a nation called Babylon. And the book of Jeremiah sort of looks back at what went wrong. Here in chapter 7, we see the prophet Jeremiah. He's standing at the gate of the temple, at least when it was around. This is before it was destroyed. And he's calling God's people to repent. That's verse 3. Then he says in verse 4, Do not trust in these deceptive words. And I loved how Jenny paused on this when she was reading it. Do not trust in these deceptive words. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. You can picture them standing in the temple and just, just, ah, here we are. In the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What's that really saying? It's saying, we're safe here. No matter what we do, no matter what we're like, 
as long as we're in the temple of the Lord, then he's covering us. He's covering our sin. He's covering our rebellion. I used to do a little babysitting uh, when I was a teenager, quick way to earn some money. And I liked, you know, just hanging around with next door neighbor's kids and whatever as well. I, was, I just enjoyed that. And so I'd go across and, and do the babysitting for the next door neighbors and, and others in our street. Um, the kids learned pretty quickly that I wasn't their parent, right? And so they could do really whatever they want if only they used this irrefutable logic. And the logic was, this isn't your house. This is our house, <laughs> right? So we could do what we want and they'd go and grab the ice cream or whatever and I'd be like, no, stop, you know, because what, what really can I do at that point? And I had a few little things that I'd try and whatever, but my hands were largely tied. The problem is, it's a pretty short-sighted strategy, isn't it? Because kids, what do you think is going to happen when mum and dad get home? <laughs> I'm going to tell them, hey, uh, they said that this was their house and they went and got the, the ice cream and da-da-da-da. Oh, thanks, Dan, for, for telling us. <laughs> right? You're in big trouble. Because <laughs> it wasn't really their house. It was their parents' house. They really owned it. And and that's kind of what's going on here as well. Uh, God's people think that they're safe in the temple. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This is our house. This is God's house. We're safe in here no matter what we do. And they think that just being in God's house will cover them with God's blessing. And so verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, we're safe. Only to go on doing all these abominations. You know what the answer is? No, (laughs) you can't do that. It's just like the kids I babysat. This is our house. We can do what we want. But of course, someone owns the house. God owns the temple and he sees it. Verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a, catch word, den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. It's not like the roof of that house is blocking God's vision like a Google Earth so that he cannot see what's happening inside. He can see what happens in his house and he won't let it keep happening. He won't let people pretend like they're safe in the temple while they're rebelling against its builder. In fact, that's why he sends them into exile. That's why he ensures that this temple is destroyed along with the false religion that it embodies. We cannot hide from God. We might think that we can, but we can't. And that's the idea that Jesus picks up in the first century temple by calling these people a den of robbers. They assume that they can do whatever they want in God's temple. They can set up a marketplace, never mind the Gentiles. They can turn a quick buck, never mind the marginalized. They can do what's ever right in their own eyes, never mind God. That's what they're thinking. But it's another short-sighted strategy because here comes the owner of the temple. Here comes Jesus, the Son of God, and he drives them out. Just like in Jeremiah's time, God drove the people out into exile. It's a repeat. Jesus confronts dead religion. In fact, he has the right to, doesn't he? He's got the credentials. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. In fact, I will give you a verse up on your screen here. Matthew 3 
John the Baptist said that the Messiah would come with his winnowing fork in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And I know that's full on, but we've got a glimpse of that here, friends. Jesus comes to the people who claim that they are his people, who claim to be in the house of God and to be safe. And he says, I'm coming to gather you up and burn you. I am coming to bring judgment. I am coming to drive you out. He confronts them. And we know, of course, this isn't the final confrontation, right? This is just a little skirmish on the way. Because think about it. I mean, how long is it going to take for the temple to go back to normal? Jesus can't stay there all day, every day, just, you know, kicking people out. Making sure that the blind and the lame and the Gentiles have a place to worship. He can't just stay there. In fact, uh, this is an interesting little historical piece. Uh, in John chapter 2, we actually get uh, Jesus visiting the temple and doing much the same thing, but this time very early on in his ministry career. So did you know that there were actually two times that Jesus drove out people from the temple? One early in John and then this one late in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And what does that say to you? It says that Jesus, a few years earlier... Came and that's the one where he got the whip, right? He fashioned the whip and drove people out. Uh, so, so it says to me that Jesus came and drove out the temple, and then a few years later he came back and found that the temple had just reverted to normal. It was not a lasting change. It was not a lasting reformation. That's because Jesus, and I think Jesus knows this, he's coming to deal with the symptom of the problem, not the root of the problem. The root of the problem will not be dealt with until the end of Passover week, which is coming up at the end of Matthew's gospel. But nonetheless, uh, we get here a bit of a glimpse of what reforming dead religion can really look like. And back in Matthew 21 verse 14, part of what reforming dead religion and its impact looks like is that the blind, the lame, the children, the outsider are free to come and find healing in worship to find peace with God and, and to come and to praise Him. They're healed by Jesus. They have a place. The children shout Hosanna. They're praising God. Verse 15 actually calls these wonderful things that Jesus did. Wonderful things. But unfortunately, He is just dealing with the symptom. Look at how the leaders respond. Verse 15, they see these things and they are what? What's it say? Indignant. Indignant. Do you think they're ready to be changed? Do you think they're ready to be reformed? No way. And in a way, isn't that all of us though? When God comes and presses on something in our lives that we don't want Him to touch. And I mean this whether you're you're not a Christian, you're checking these things out, or you've been a Christian for a long time. When God comes and He challenges and confronts something in us that looks more like death than life, that looks more like sin than worship, and we just go, no, no you, you can't touch that. I know you have the right to, but no. And we're indignant that God would confront that in our lives. And so what we sometimes do, I wonder if you can resonate with this, we hide. Just like these guys are hiding in the temple, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They knew what they were doing was wrong. That's why they all scatter so quickly, right? 
one guy isn't going to overpower like dozens of others unless they have, he has an ally in their consciences. So I think they know what's wrong. So too, we know what's wrong. We know that God is confronting this thing in our life because it is an offence to him. But then we, we hide. We, we hide behind religious observance. We hide behind things like church attendance. Oh, well, I'm at church almost every week. We hide behind things like our Bible reading. Well, I've been reading the Bible really well. Or, the flip side, I haven't been, but I will. (laughs) I will. I'll get back on track. That'll make things okay. We hide behind things like serving. Oh, well, I'm, you know what? I gave half of Saturday to come and help at the working bee, or I'm giving every Monday night at band practice. You know, God knows that I give so much. We hide behind these things. It's just the same as these guys going, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The temple won't save them, nor will our supposed good works. Religious observance doesn't hide anything from God. He sees it. And we can't have Jesus just come and and drive out the symptoms of dead religion. We need him to do something much deeper in us. And in fact, friends, that's what he does do. At the end of Passover week, he doesn't just destroy the dividing line, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He also rips down the curtain in the temple that goes into the Holy of Holies. I'm talking, of course, about his death and how in his death on our behalf, he makes us right with God. He gives us peace with God because at the cross, he takes this sin, our indignance, our hiding, our rebellion upon himself. Jesus was treated as the person who tried to hide his sin. He never did because he never sinned. But Jesus was treated as that person on the cross. He was treated as the one who hated the outsider. It's just ridiculous. Anything, if you know anything about Jesus, it's that he loved outsiders, right? (laughs) And yet on the cross, he was treated by God the Father as if he was the hater of the outsider because he took our sin, he wore it like a shirt, he took our sin upon himself and he was judged for the offences that we committed. He took the penalty, he took the judgment we deserve. And then when he rises on the third day, it shows that that sin is dealt with. It shows that his messianic credentials were true. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Savior. He really is the one that we can call out Hosanna to because he has the power to save. He has dealt with our sin and no amount of religious observance will ever get you there because it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. So friend, there is no need to hide. Do you get that? There is no need to hide. You can't hide. And I mean this whether you are not yet a Christian or you've been a Christian for a long time. There is no point in hiding from God. And there is no point in trying to hide in religious observance. Instead, flee unto Jesus. Cling to his cross. Repent of your sin. Say, I'm done with it. And then even if you fail again, (laughs) trust in Christ to bring forgiveness. This is how he reforms dead religion, not just by driving out dead religious observance, but by giving his own life in our place so that we might be at peace with God. 
Jesus came to tear down the dividing wall between insider and outsider, and he came to tear down the curtain between sinners and a holy God. And I want us to think as we finish up here, those two questions, who can worship, how do worshippers live? Is there anything at the moment that you are trying to hide from God? Is there a, a person even among us, and I think particularly if you're a member here, is there a person among us that you just find it so hard to get along with? So hard to welcome into your life. So hard to encourage and pray with because they are so different to you. Is there someone you need to accept? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there a kind of person that you need to work through your prejudice against because that may be the kind of person that in fact the Lord wants to bring here and save? Or is there a a sin in your life? Is there something that's going on that you've been hiding from the Lord, maybe even hiding behind religious observance, but what you need to do is just bring it into the light and find that God, in fact, will give you peace with him, not by getting your life on track, but by trusting in Jesus, finding refuge in him, and then in him and in the spirit, finding power to change. I want to give you a moment to reflect on these things and to respond to the Lord in your heart, friends, and then we'll pray. Lord, coming to my mind are some other words from Jeremiah, that the heart is deceitful above all things, that it is desperately sick. And we know, Lord, that at times our hearts condemn us when there is no need for them to. So I pray for the particularly sensitive among us, Lord, that they would find refuge in Jesus, their sympathetic saviour. Lord, we also know that at times our hearts try to justify us, justify our prejudice, justify our sin, justify our hiding. And so, Lord, together we turn to your word and we turn to your voice rather than the voice of our hearts. And we ask, please make us what we are not. Please show us what we need to see and do not yet see. And Lord, please help us bring to you in the light whatever it is we may be trying to hide from you, finding forgiveness through faith in your Son and finding the power to change through the work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to share in communion together. So the helpers are going to come and stand down the front um, as, a, as a bit of a connection between what we've just heard and the act of taking communion. Uh, there might be